Good morning, everybody. Yeah, Joanna, we're so proud of you. Love you so much. So cool. So good. I just dropped something. Oh. Um, <clears throat> okay, we, uh, we're in Revelation chapter 7. We are setting a pace through the book of Revelation, the likes of which the world has never known. So turn to Revelation chapter 7. Gosh, there's a bunch of batteries on my pulpit, and they're falling everywhere. Oh, we're off to a rough start here. Oh. Okay, I'm going to mute this for a moment, reconnect it. Check one, two. Good? Sorry, it was so awkward. As awkward as it is for you, it's a hundred times more so for me. A hundred, maybe a thousand. Okay, we are in Revelation chapter 7, and our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon. Let's let them know that we love them. We're one with them. The title of this message is The Kindness of God Revealed in His Plan for Israel and the Martyrs. Remember last week in chapter 6, we saw the kindness of God revealed in his patient and progressive judgment. Now we see God's kindness revealed in a reprieve from judgment as he deals with two special groups who are profoundly affected by the tribulation period. That is Israel and the martyrs. Now regarding Israel, uh, there's much to be said about the nation of Israel and how they figure in the end times. A whole lot that we will not cover in this sermon series on the book of Revelation. So we've made available for you this week on our website a bunch of my past teachings on the nation of Israel. Uh, we've got ones on God's choosing of Israel, the fact that God has not rejected Israel, the biblical claim to the land, how Christians should view and think about Israel, God's preservation of them, and God's prophecies concerning Israel in the last day. They figure prominently in the end times and the things happening in the book of Revelation. So those are on the website this week. You can go check those out, use them as a primer to kind of catch up on uh, God's truth and plan for Israel, which we'll just kind of touch on today. But that'll really help you gain a more robust knowledge of that. So those are there. Now we're going to read all of chapter 7, and then we'll teach through it. So Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, I am reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible. John says in verse 1 of chapter 7, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. 
From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. This is God's wonderful word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your word. And thank you that this morning we can hear your word, preach your word, think upon it, meditate upon it. And thank you for the fact that the Holy Spirit will minister your word to us. And though these things can seem pretty ethereal, and far off and, and somewhat removed, they're not. This is about our Savior, Jesus, who loves us and saved us, who gave his life for us that we might have new life, who rose from the dead and who is seated on high, ruling and reigning over all the nations, bringing all things into his sovereign plan. And we get a little glimpse of the working out of that and its messiness and its beauty and its glory and its power in its clarity, and in its mystery. Thank you for it, Lord. May it profoundly and wonderfully affect our lives today that we might be faithful followers of Jesus for his glory and fame. Help me now, please, Lord, to teach and preach. And help us to hear, to respond and to obey and to worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, dear brothers and sisters whom I love, we are in the thick of the book of Revelation now. And you'll remember from last week as we looked at chapter 6 that in chapter 6, God's justice has come to earth. God's judgment has come to earth. Let's call it what it is. God's wrath has come to earth. A future time, I believe. I believe these things have to do primarily with the future. A time known as the Great Tribulation Period that we've talked a bit about and we'll talk much more about in the weeks to come. God's judgment is being brought to earth. We saw that in chapter 6. And now, in chapter 7, it's as if Jesus hits the pause button. 
He's bringing God's justice to earth. But now in chapter 7, there's a reprieve. And you'll remember that John is seeing these things in visions. And he saw in visions the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all these things unfolding on earth and human rebellion running its course and God's justice coming. And now he gets this vision of this reprieve. There's a pause in God's judgment. In order that God's kindness might be shown in the way that he deals with some of his people, specifically during this time of the tribulation, Israel and the martyr church are the parties in view in chapter 7. You remember that Jesus in Romans 5, 9 is said to be the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. The tribulation period is God's wrath come to earth. He's the one who saves us from God's wrath, it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And that's part of what we see here in chapter 7. The vision switches from the horror of chapter 6 to a glorious picture of God's kindness, preservation, protection, covering, care, and leading of his people here in chapter 7. And so in verse 1, that vision begins to unfold. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or any other tree. We see sometimes in the Old Testament, and the book of Revelation is heavily formed by the thoughts of the Old Testament, the imagery used there, that wind represents the judgment of God. We see that in Jeremiah 49 and in other places. And we know that the judgment of God is what's unfolding now. And so when we see these angels come now, and they're holding back the four winds. This is a a temporary holding back of God's judgment. That's the picture. That's the vision. That's the imagery given to God. I mean, excuse me, given to John by God. His judgment coming, pictured by the wind. Now it's being held back rather than brought forth. Remember the angels in chapter six were saying, come as the seals were broken. Now they're holding back God's judgment. There is this reprieve. Verse two says... And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that is the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So another angel now comes, and he comes from the rising of the sun. The rising of the sun is in the east. The east in Old Testament imagery is pictured as where the place where hope comes from. You'll remember that when the Messiah comes, we see in the Old Testament, he's expected to come through the eastern gate of the temple there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. It's called the Glorious Gate or the Gate Beautiful. And when something comes from the east in Old Testament and biblical, New Testament, Book of Revelation imagery, it's the picture of hope. So the winds of judgment are being held back. Another great angel appears coming from the east, that symbolic direction of hope, of deliverance for God's people. And he has the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God. God is often called the living God in scripture. But in particular, he's referred to as a living God when he's about to intervene on behalf of his people. When he's about to rescue his people. He's put in juxtaposition to the dead gods whom the people often gave themselves to. The idols that they carved for themselves. So they had no power to deliver No power to save, no way to intervene, no power to rescue because they were dead idols and people were in folly in following them. And so when God is called the living God, 
It's saying, people, listen up. This message is coming from the east, the direction of hope. And here comes the seal of the living God, the God who can truly deliver, for he lives. And there is this seal. Now, seal speaks of, it's a way of showing preservation, protection, and ownership. You'll remember that the seal, there were seven seals on the scroll of judgment. It was sealed up. It was protected. It was owned. Only Christ could receive it, you'll remember from the previous chapter. A seal is often the sign of ownership. This is true in biblical imagery even for us New Testament believers. Look what it says about us in the book of Ephesians. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the idea of seal is this biblical imagery for ownership. And you know that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we now become God's people, God's own possession. We belong to him. He is our father. We are in Christ. And so we're sealed. And the way that the Christian is sealed is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us. And that's the identifying mark of new life regeneration, being born again, belonging to God, those who are God's own possession. So that's the idea of a seal. So when this angel comes now from the east, the place of hope, with the seal of the living God, living God, hope, deliverance, intervening, seal, ownership, protection, possession. So God's judgment has come to earth. It's bad, chapter 6. There's a sudden reprieve. Chapter 7, there's a seal. The living God, what's he going to do with it? Verse 3, the angel said, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. So judgment is held back for a particular group. They're called here the bondservants of God. A bondservant was someone who chose to serve. They were not enslaved. They chose to serve. We're called bondservants of Christ in the New Testament. We choose to follow. We choose to obey. We choose to serve. And so these are the same kind. They have chosen to serve, to obey God. Who is it in particular? It's pretty obvious in verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here we have God in the midst of the tribulation period intervening on behalf of his people, Israel. Intervening on behalf of the Jews. He's coming to mark them as his own with the seal and to protect them during this time of tribulation. Some would say that it's the general church that's in view here. But this is pretty specific language. I mean, it says the 12 tribes of Israel, and then it bothers to name them. And there's some nuances that we won't get into right now. But in general, name the 12 tribes. And 12,000 from each one, 144,000. This clearly seems to be representative of something that God is doing in the final scenario for Israel. And what this is showing us, 
is tremendously good news. What John is being shown here is that in the end times, as difficult as they will be, many, many Jews will turn back to God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Many will be saved. This seems to be abundantly evident as to what is happening here when we see these 144,000 appear again in chapter 14. Turn to chapter 14 of Revelation. We'll see this particular group once again. And it seems pretty clear that that's the case. They have been saved, a great number. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. There's the seal. Okay, that's imagery. They belong to the Messiah and to the Father. It's unmistakable. It's on their foreheads, so to speak. And I heard a voice from the heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of the loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Redemption language, salvation language. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They have kept themselves chaste. They are those who follow the Lamb. Salvation language, following Jesus language, wherever he goes. These have been purchased, again redeemed, from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So it seems abundantly clear, you can go back to chapter 7 now, that who is in view here is a representative body of Israel. And what's happening is that God is endeavoring to protect them during the tribulation period. They've been sealed, the name of the Father and the Messiah, on their forehead. They have been redeemed. They have put their faith in Jesus Christ, seems to be what is unfolding here. How many of Israel will be saved? Well, it's many, many. It says 12,000 from each tribe. There's 12 tribes, so do the math, 144,000. Twelve is seen in scripture, as seven is, as a particular number of completion. There were 12 apostles. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There will be 12 foundations in the New Jerusalem. There will be 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. Much like seven, it's this number of completion that represents something that's full. So it may be literal, that at this moment in the tribulation period, there's 144,000 Jews who are saved, or it just may be a number that's used to mean many, many, a complete number according to God's choosing. 12,000 from each tribe, 12 being that representative number of completion. Either way, the good news is, God has pressed the pause button on tribulation to care for his people, Israel, and they are turning back to the Messiah. This is a beautiful, beautiful moment of reprieve that shows forth God's faithfulness to his promises. What the text is saying to us and what is important for us to know, dear brothers and sisters, is that God is not done with Israel. God is not done with Israel. They figure prominently 
into God's plan and into his plan for the end times. Remember, what is happening overall in the book of Revelation is that God's kingdom, his righteous rule through the Messiah is coming to earth. What we are seeing is the ultimate fulfillment of his plan to redeem and restore the world. That's what ultimately happens in the book of Revelation. And remember, this plan of bringing God's righteous rule, of restoring the world, of redeeming the whole world was first given to Israel. We have in Jeremiah chapter 33 this. This is about the new covenant. This day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I promised them. The day will come. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. Who's that a prophecy about? Jesus. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. In that day, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says. David will have a descendant sitting on his throne forever. So the promise of this kingdom that is coming ultimately to earth through Jesus was first made to Israel. And the kingdom came when the righteous descendant from King David's line, Jesus, came the first time. It came in part. The kingdom will come in fullness. Hasn't come in fullness yet. That's why Jesus said, I want you to pray thy kingdom come. It will come in fullness when the Messiah comes the second time. That's what we're going to see happening in the closing four or so chapters of the book of Revelation. And he, the Messiah, the descendant of King David, will do what is just throughout the whole earth. Please remember that when Jesus came the first time, he came to the Jews. He came to Israel as a Jew, a descendant of King David from the tribe of Judah. He brought the message of the good news, the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews. Many did not believe, but many did believe. And just because some did not believe does not mean that God has abandoned Israel. This is abundantly clear from the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Because some didn't believe God isn't going to back out on his promises to Israel, their inclusion in the kingdom, in the coming kingdom, is he? Not by any means. God is not done with Israel. Don't forget, people often say, well, the Jews rejected Jesus, and so now it's just about the Gentiles being brought into the church. Don't forget that the early church was all Jews. It was made up of all Israel. It happened in Israel. It's not until almost halfway through the book of Acts that the first Gentile is saved. Thousands upon thousands in Jerusalem were saved. Don't forget that when Paul first began his missionary endeavors, he always went first to the Jews. He went to the synagogues. And then he would go to the Gentiles. 
The gospel was brought first to the Jews, then the gospel went to the other nations, biblical languages, Gentiles. That was always the plan. For though God's promises about the kingdom and salvation were made specifically to Israel, they were meant to be inclusive of the whole world. This goes all the way back to Genesis and the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. When God promised that a nation would come forth from Abraham, right? And that all the nations would be blessed in one who would come from Abraham, the promised Messiah, Jesus, the savior of Israel and the savior of the whole world. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise of the Messiah and the gospel and the coming kingdom, the redemption and restoration of all things is for the whole world, all who would believe, but for the Jews first. Again, Paul in Romans chapter one. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's important for us to remember now, being somewhat removed, that because the gospel has gone to the nations and the church is made up of all the nations, as was always the plan, that does not mean, as some would suggest, that God is done with Israel his first chosen nation. This is a matter of God's faithfulness. He made many promises to Israel. And in Revelation chapter seven, we get to see some of that coming to fruition. All the promises and the covenant by which we were saved, the new covenant, were first given to Israel. I know I'm hammering this, but this is important. Jeremiah 31. Okay, this is when the new covenant was first revealed from God. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is a covenant by which we're saved. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the language of new creation, new heart, being made brand new. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. His promises were made first to Israel. And what's happened for those beyond Israel, the Gentiles, for whom the gospel is also meant, is that we have been grafted into these promises that God made to Israel. Grafted in. You understand the language of grafting, right? You take something and you, you, you put it into something else, right? There's something original and you take something non-original and you, you put it in. You take the two and you make them one and they grow together. This is the idea of the church. We have been grafted in to the promises made to Israel. I want us to see this clearly as we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, let's look at this a little closer. 
Romans chapter 11. We will start reading in verse 17. We're going to read 12 verses or so. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, talking about Israelites who didn't believe, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, talking about these promises God made to Israel, the covenant, so on and so forth. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Let me just tell you what I think that means. Don't say that the church has replaced Israel. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. The church has replaced Israel. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith, your belief. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Listen, pause right there. What's being said here is God made promises to Israel. And if God has reneged on those promises, the promise of the kingdom and redemption, so on and so forth, how can we believe that God's ever going to be faithful to us in the promises that we believe? The Old Testament's bigger than the New Testament. The promises in the New Testament come from the promises in the Old Testament. And they were made to Israel. If we think that God has rejected his people Israel, what's to make us think that he's going to be faithful to us? Either God is faithful or he isn't. God endeavors to be faithful to Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. The church is those who have been grafted into the promises of Israel. And all those who believe, Jew and Gentile alike, become this new body of believers in Christ, the church, as one. Okay? We continue to read now in verse, what verse are we in? 23. And they also if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. That's what we're seeing in Revelation 7, and that's what we saw in Revelation 14. Israelites turning back to God through the Messiah, being grafted back in. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall those these, excuse me, who are of the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. God's able to save Israel. Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. It's part of God's mysterious plan. There'll be a time when largely Israel doesn't believe in the Messiah while Gentiles are being saved. For a time, verse 26, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. Now, you often hear Bible teachers saying, all means all, and that's that's all that all means. But that's foolish. All actually doesn't mean all, right? Like if I said, All the people in here are so beautiful. Not everybody necessarily is. All doesn't, I'm kidding, you all really are, but 
Or if I said, we all love surfing, don't we? Not everybody necessarily does. All doesn't mean all here. All is conditional upon belief. God is not going to save Israel that refuses to believe in the promised Messiah, Jesus. Look again at verse 23. And so they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. All is a dependent phrase upon belief. Turning back to the promised Messiah, the descendant of David, Jesus. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. It's exciting. It's wonderful. Many are being saved. Verse 26 again, thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take, with them, when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We often use that to talk about our own gifts and our places and our positions. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about Israel's place in God's plan of redemption. It's irrevocable. Why? Because Israel's so wonderful? No, because God is so wonderful. Because God is faithful. And God is a covenant-keeping God. And he keeps his word to a thousand generations. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we're seeing the end. And we can look back at the promises made in the beginning. And we can see that at the end, God is keeping them. Though so much in this world doesn't make sense right now and so much seems difficult, we can see the promises of then and the fulfillment in the future and rejoice in our faithful God who has also saved us. Isn't that good? Okay, go back to Revelation 7 now. I'll stop beating that drum. (laughs) So this is what's pictured in Revelation 7. All Israel, meaning those who return in belief are being saved. Maybe it's literally 144,000 at that point. Maybe that's a representative number of much more. And he's preserving them, the seal, right? We saw in Revelation 14:1, it's the name of the Messiah and the Father on their forehead. He's preserving them. They will be protected through the revelation, or excuse me, through the tribulation period, this great number of Jews. Now, what do you suppose will happen if there's this great number of Jews on the earth and God's judgment, God's wrath is coming. There's these cataclysmic events unfolding. They're affecting all of humanity, but this certain segment is protected and untouchable. I'll tell you what's going to happen. People are going to be turning to them saying, what's the deal? What's, what's different? I'll tell you what I think these 144,000 will be or whatever number they represent. The greatest missionary force the world has ever seen. Because judgment is going to be clear. And people are going to be saying, what can I do? And who has the answers? Judgment isn't touching them. They must know something and they will say, we know the Messiah. Turn to him and be saved. You see how kind God is? That even as his justice comes, there is always room for repentance. He's always making plans for the gospel to go forth in the world in profound and wonderful ways. This is just another way and we see it in the book of Revelation. Now, we also see in this chapter God's plan for another particular group of believers, the martyrs. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count, 
from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches are in their hands. We know from the book of Revelation that those who do put their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period, many of them will suffer. There's already martyrdom happening in the world right now. But the world will be more and more increasingly anti-Christ during that time and as we progress during that time. And it's clear in a bunch of places in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 20, that believers are frequently martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ under the world's sway of the Antichrist, the plan of the enemy, so on and so forth. Chapter 20, verse 4, we see a multitude, innumerable amount of believers who have been beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ. And now they're pictured here. Jesus told us that there would be days like these. Again, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Speaking about the end times, we saw some of this last week. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Do you remember when Jesus was speaking to the seven churches that represent the full church? in the opening chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, that he was always telling them to hold on, to persevere, to overcome. He was always calling them to overcome because Christ is the one who has overcome. He's a great overcomer. And so because he has overcome, the call on us is to overcome. And he tells that to the church because there will be great persecution. That's a reality for some of our brethren around the world right now. And it'll be a reality for the whole world in the future. And so the call is to overcome. And with that, there's these wonderful promises and who we're seeing pictured here and that beautiful protection that we see in the last few verses of the lamb covering them and guiding them and feeding them. That's a picture of those who in their faith in Jesus overcame. In other words, didn't abandon their faith, didn't give up, didn't pull out when things got hard. Jesus told them about this and made great promises to them in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's a few sampling of the verses. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on in the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's these promises for those who overcome. And, and, and Jesus made them to the churches in the book of Revelation because in the original context, they were experiencing hard times. Government-sanctioned persecution and the murder of Christians under the Roman Empire. And that'll be a greater reality in the future. And so these wonderful promises for those who overcome. God's kindness revealed and this reprieve from judgment 
as God shows himself faithful in taking care of Israel and as he shows himself faithful and kind in caring for the martyrs. And what are they doing in heaven? And we ought to take some clues from this, verse 10. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Notice in verse nine, they have palm branches. That's a biblical symbol of victory. They've overcome. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Every time anybody who's saved is pictured in heaven, they fall on their faces. And they seem to run out of words. But there's new words. They sing new songs in heaven. And yet they run out of words like blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power. Might, what more could you say? It's clear who these are from the following verses. And one of the elders answered and said to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to them, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation." They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Salvation imagery language. You don't wash anything in blood and it becomes white unless it's the blood of the lamb by which we are purified, forgiven, cleansed, made brand new, washed white as snow. And their gig on earth was tough. Many of our brethren around the world have a tough gig right now. Some of you have tough times, tough moments, tough gigs. And this word is for you. This word is for you. Notice that they're not heads hanging low when they're in heaven. No, they've got palm branches and they're waving and they, they've overcome. Sin, death, and the devil have been defeated and they're experiencing the fruit of that. They're singing. They're on their faces. They're worshiping. And look at this beautiful care God has for them. Verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb, who's that? In the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Life is tough sometimes. They had a tough gig. Life is tough sometimes. There's coming a day, and there is a place where we'll be in God's presence. In his temple, it's a picture of his presence. And we'll be serving him. You know, you, you know what that means? It says they serve him day and night. They are finally free from serving futile things. They're finally free from serving the almighty dollar. They're finally free from serving things that rust and crumble and falter and fail. They're finally free from serving themselves They're finally free from serving the opinions of others. They're finally free from serving the sway of culture. They serve God day and night. In that, there is no regret. 
They're in his presence. And it says, and he shall spread his tabernacle over them. That's covering language. It's like a mother or a father who takes a little one in their arms who's fallen down. He's going to take these fallen ones in his arms. He spreads his tabernacle over them. Christ is their covering. It's like this giant heavenly hug for those who have had a hard time. No hunger or thirst. That just means that they're ultimately, completely, fully, and finally satisfied. You know this world will never satisfy Only Jesus satisfies. This text is telling us that. There's no hunger of any sort. There's no thirst of any sort. They are finally and fully and ultimately, and so we shall be satisfied in Christ. They're not scorched by the sun nor any heat beating down on them. That means that there's no discomfort. There's no exposure. They're not exposed anymore to things that threaten them. Nobody's dying of cancer. All these things have been done away with. The Lamb, Jesus, who is in the center of the throne, shall be their shepherd. The one who cares for them, loves them, holds them, protects them, feeds them, satisfies them. He leads them to springs of the water of life. And though in their life there were many tears, God himself wipes away everyone. No more sorrow. No more pain. For they are with Jesus. This is good. This is God's kindness for his people. This is for us. Thank you, Lord. What a beautiful and encouraging picture you've given to us, Lord. We're thankful for it. And we ask that we would just be greatly encouraged by it. We want to be encouraged by your faithfulness. You're showing yourself faithful to ancient promises. Even though sometimes it seems like what's going on, you're... You're coming good. You're making good on your promises. We always knew you would. You're our faithful God. And you're showing tremendous kindness to those who have suffered much. We knew that you would. You're so kind. You've sealed us with your seal. We are yours. Thank you for being kind and loving to us, Lord. Thank you for this great picture of that. Thank you that the difficulties of this world aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Encourage our hearts with who you are, God, and help us to rejoice in you and live faithfully. We ask it in Jesus' name.